Hello and a very warm welcome to the first edition of Econoday Unplugged in 2021. It's Thursday the 7th of January and on behalf of everyone here at Econoday, a very happy, healthy and hopefully profitable new year to one and all. It's a full crew today, so we mark Pender across the pond stateside, Brian Jackson's in Sydney and I'm Jeremy Hawkins in London. Well, 2020 was certainly a turbulent affair and a year that most will be happy to see confined to the history books. Sadly, as we start the new year, coronavirus infection rates remain alarmingly high in many countries and containment measures will continue to pose a significant threat to economic activity for at least a while yet. That said, crucially, the arrival of a number of COVID-19 vaccines promises a much more optimistic 2021 in general and should ensure that the virus doesn't dominate capital markets trading as it did for so much of last year. In which case then, what are the other issues most likely to feature amongst the market movers and shakers over the coming months and quarters? I guess uh, particularly in the light of yesterday's chaos in Washington, we should kick off uh, with the US. So, Mr. Pender, new presidency under Joe Biden. We've mm-hmm. just seen uh, the yield on US Treasuries climb well what, well above the 1% mark for the first time in nine months or so. Uh-huh. I mean, is it right to assume we're in for a major expansion of fis- US fiscal policy? And, and what else should we be looking out for? Well, I, I, whether or not we're going to see the kind of um, increase in fiscal spending um, that I think many expect uh, would mark a seam or a shift from what we've seen under Trump uh, administration. Uh, that was a, a, an enormous amount of um, a fiscal stimulus that uh, 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 ballooned uh, the U.S. debt. So, um, and that is, if that's the comparison, I don't think that the move would be geometric in increasing um, spending. I think that there will have to be a um, fiscal package. I think that uh, that's almost what uh, Joe Biden uh, was promising and uh, um, uh, leading up uh, to uh, the Georgia um, runoffs, which gave the Democrats that uh, the blue wave, and uh, uh, even though they're marginal, um, as margin as it can get, their control over the government, they have that. So they're going to have a free hand, and um, I don't think that that will. Uh, I don't think that there will be a maybe not even a perceptible difference in fiscal uh, at the end of the day in fiscal uh, stimulus. So there's going to be plenty of it, uh, and of course the, the path of the um, of COVID and and how it unplays, even though we have the vaccines, we have the new mutations, we have accelerations in infections in the U.S. and, and in deaths. So um, the, there's light at the end of the tunnel, but the, the tunnel is still very, very long, and it's a, <laughs> and it's a little pin of light. So, uh, so there's a lot between here and there and uh, for investors, and I think that Partly, I think of what you're if you're if you're seeing U.S. yields go up, I think that that by contrary or uh, uh, counterintuitive is uh, given what we just saw yesterday uh, in Washington is that that might be a you know less uh, concerns over risk that uh, where we're going to get a more uh, predictable uh, uh, path of economic policy 
and uh, that may be, uh, and it may include uh, fiscal stimulus, and hopefully it will include a lift in inflation. And that's because uh, we've got the unified Congress and White House now. Yes, uh, everything is, everyone's on the same page right now. Okay. So, Right. Next yeah. question then. Sorry, we're uh-huh. wishing, wishing to interrupt. But um, so we've seen equity markets continuing to fly. We've seen mm-hmm. bond yields going up as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the mix? I mean, not so very long ago, probably the idea of a Democrats taking a full sweep. The equity markets have been distinctly nervous because the uh, mm-hmm. pros- prospect of potentially what more regulation for mm-hmm. especially these days for the tech stocks, which have done so well, increased consumer protectionism, so on and so forth. And mm-hmm. yet that doesn't seem to be having any impact whatsoever at the moment so why do you think equity markets are still going up uh, uh, central bank uh, uh, monetary policy low interest rates uh, pumping uh, liquidity it, it has to go somewhere we're seeing bitcoin just shoot through the roof mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so i think that what you're seeing is uh, this froth this monetary froth that um, uh, you know, and uh, the FOMC minutes came out uh, uh, the other day, yesterday, and it was a reminder back in December uh, that they were already, uh, you know, talking about how are they going to begin to withdraw a stimulus. And the idea was that, well, it's going to have to be, they use, use the word now, substantial improvement in employment and in, in inflation. So they're, they're saying, well, we're going to you know, keep a lot of liquidity in the system until we really see something very significant and you can identify it yourself. And uh, so, I mean, those cards are already being laid out, uh, the withdrawal of stimulus. And if these financial markets and and house prices, home prices, you saw it in the U, you see it in the UK Mm -hmm. and and we're seeing it over here. Just uh, those assets are shooting, values are shooting through the roof. So, um, but, you know, uh, uh, turning back to economic data real quickly here is uh, Friday's an employment report here from the U.S. And um, it's an interesting report because the expectations for this report are pointing to a big breakdown in uh, the post-lockdown of last spring, the recovery over that period of time. It looks like the economy consensus is now 65,000 rise in non-farm payroll. That's marginal. And and we had ADP on Wednesday with – and their – uh, data showing a, um, a actual outright contraction. And today we had the ISM employment services sector, which is a large, um, which is the bulk of the employment, of course, uh, and their sample, smaller sample, of course, and uh, but they, sh- uh, they also showed contraction. So there is, you know, the possibility that um, fundamental economic data is going to come back into the markets in a big way on Friday if there is a, a you know, a, a significant uh, breakdown in employment growth, right. especially if that headline, non-farm payrolls, has a minus sign in front of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, good point. Yeah, right. just, just, just with the Senate, yeah. though, um, uh, you know, returning to that issue about why, you know, markets perhaps aren't too concerned about, you know, the prospect of, of the Democrats having control of the Senate, is could it be just because it is such a, a tight margin and so any... You know, any fiscal stimulus or any other policy, really, that the Biden administration can push through is going to have to get the support of, you know, of those sort of moderate Democrats who are going to really sort of hold the, the balance of power to a certain extent. I'm not so sure that there's any moderates anymore. Uh, Biden has taken this. Uh, well, he Biden is turning into a moderate, but uh, I, I think that the Democrats now there's a, a everyone's you know wearing the same the uh, the same colors, and uh, and I think that he's good. Biden has positioned himself in the center um, 
uh, economically and politically. He's moved. He's pushed off the left. He's 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 coming in to the uh, right. And so if he does lose moderate uh, Democrats, and however few those may be, he's he could very well collect uh, an equivalent, if not more, on the Republican side. So I think that that it, it it's going to be. I, I think a um, uh, Biden's going to be able to to play out this the way he wants to play it out, and I think he's going to want to play it out in a very uh, moderate and, and, and from the center position. Okay, Can't, so I don't want to spend too much too long on politics, obviously, because we're supposed to be talking economics, but it's really is quite a fascinating time, clearly. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, obviously, so, so the Democrats got the House, the Senate, and the presidency, but yeah. they don't have the Supreme Court yeah. now. As an outsider, how important is it the fact that the basically Republicans have, can do whatever they want from the Supreme Court itself? Is that going to be relevant to how policy is formulated in 2021? Not for I don't think for economics at all. Uh, and it's they, these are you know big social issues that the you know the Supreme Court you know does its business its daily business dealing with you know um, issues between the states and uh, you know uh, social issues and those kinds of things. Uh, but as far as like broad economic policy, I don't. It's not going to be uh, that meaningful. And in any case, um, you know, uh, part of what all this what we've seen played out was the Supreme Court and two uh, throwing out. Or not wanting to hear two uh, important cases uh, on Trump's um, uh, appeals. So, uh, so, so, yeah. So, but I don't think that the Supreme Court. I think that I, uh, that what what we have now is is kind of an unusual thing. Even though it is by the by the thinnest margin, and uh, the first day Biden gets in there, he I don't want to go out about politics, but the first day he gets in there, he has to try to think about the the elections in uh, in two years when because his uh, margins are so thin, right? So, I mean. Boris Johnson doesn't have to worry about that. He has a huge margin, so but it's it's, it's different over here. Yeah. All right. Um, right. Okay. Let's just switch. FOMC. Uh-huh. Um, we got a new makeup with the usual usual regional rotation, and from rightly we have a new face, Christopher Waller, sworn in as a Fed governor. Was it last month? If I remember rightly. Any implications yeah. there for what might happen to quantitative easing or U.S. interest rates? Well, if there is going to be any changes in quantitative easing, it's probably going to be a movement uh, along the uh, maturity uh, out the curve, uh, the Fed then trying to control um, uh, long-term interest rates. Uh, but they're already very low. Uh, so um, it's, you know, I think that that was they basically, and that was what the FOMC minute said yesterday, that their policy nuances here or their shifts aren't going to be on the interest rate uh the federal funds rate it's going to be on uh, the value the amount of quantitative easing they do if they increase it or if they begin to taper it down and or and or moving uh, uh, what part of the curve they, they may concentrate on but still these are pretty academic and theoretical and right now it, it, we have to see how um COVID is playing out and if it can be contained and um and that's where we're going to see the employment report on Friday, and if it's a really very, very uh, poor report, then I think people are, are really going to get uh, uh, very concerned. I mean, we're all seeing in our reports that we do these big, huge supplier delivery delays, yeah. and th- those are in part, uh, you know, the inability to get people because people are hunkered down, they have to do childcare and these kinds of things, and that's restricting their ability to um, for employment and it's limiting, you know, it, it, it's decreasing capacity. So that is going to be, is it choking off? Is it a choke off risk? And, and we may see something like that on Friday. 
Okay, excellent. Right, let's move on then to the Southern Hemisphere. Um, Brian, something so really I did get to what Mark wants to think about say about this as well because presumably this is going to be one of the huge issues for this year and that is Chinese politics particularly given the latest developments in Hong Kong so given what's going on how do you see this sort of political landscape shaping up as we go through this year because clearly it's going to be a major player I suspect in what happens to most markets. Yeah I guess the key issue um, at least in the first you know the next few months is just what sort of approach we'll see towards China from the Biden administration? Um, you know, I guess you know there's still a little bit of uncertainty of you know of exactly you know how quote unquote tough they're going to be with China um, going forward. Um, just uh, this week, when we we had all those arrests in China of uh, in Hong Kong of mm-hmm. of opposition politicians, we've had some pretty stern comments from um, the Biden administration's nominee for Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken. So um, you know. They're, they are prepared to, to stand up and, and criticise uh, some of these uh, moves by Beijing, but you know whether that actually translates into changes in policies once the administration um, you know gets behind a desk, uh, you know we, we don't really know yet. So you know obviously there's sort of two poles that you can sort of take. Uh, you could be confrontational or conciliatory towards Beijing um, going forward, and I think you know if, if the administration goes too far in either of those two directions, and that could cause some concerns in this part of the world. So finding that balance between, um, you know, standing up to, to some of the things that you disagree with that the Chinese government's doing, but not taking it too far, that's going to be the, the real challenge, I think, for uh, for not just the Biden administration, but, but other uh, major countries as well. Okay, good answer. Um... China's got this debt mountain, which people have been talking about for a long time now as being one of the potential you know, major, major downside risks for, well, for financial markets and the economy out there. How important do you think it's going to be that you know, Beijing can actually attract overseas investment to help finance the thing? And I suppose and with that in mind, does it mean that if they've got to you know, get these capital inflows coming in, um, they're going to be prepared to allow the renminbi one to appreciate even further because it's you know it's appreciated a lot, hasn't it, over the last what half year or so? Yeah, I, I, you know, this has been a perennial issue for for China. You know, going back yeah a long time that they, you know they have financed uh, you know their economic development and the infrastructure rollout. Uh, you know, in in a pretty you know, you know using a lot of debt basically, and so that. To a certain extent, it does integrate them to a certain extent into uh, you know the, the worldwide economy. To um, otherwise, you know, instead of just doing it all by themselves, they have you know obviously been a big part of the global economy and and trying to use that to uh, fuel their development. So that might you know if, if you take a sort of positive view, that might sort of constrain uh, them uh, you know doing being too aggressive in some of the sort of political or strategic uh, areas. But, uh, yeah, I think you're right. The, the currency is um, one of the things that is going to be used as a tool to try and help manage that. Uh, and they do have a long-term policy of trying to strengthen and, um, you know, develop the use of, of the yuan as, as a global currency. Um, and, again, that might guide some of their political and strategic choices. Okay, Phil. Um, Mark, just going back to you. You've just reported today a socking great U.S. trade deficit. Um, what do you think the Biden administration's attitude will be towards trade with China? Are they, is he going to be ending like as hard line as the Trump administration? Is it going to be softer? Or, or what do you think? 
Well, the you know the hard line. How hard line was the Trump administration really? I mean, if good you question. Look, actually, yeah. if you look at the actual deficit with China, it hasn't gone anywhere. It was came in at thirty billion in goods um, for uh, in data for November, and and that's a little bit more, uh, uh, a little bit deeper than it was. It's essentially where it was before all all the all it started, but uh, all all the trade friction started, but. Um, what it has hurt over in the Trump administration's uh, uh, in this whole trade friction thing was demand for U.S. exports. So the uh, uh, importing consumer goods is still the the thing that U.S. Uh, uh, loves to do. I I was looking at the numbers. I think it was like forty billion dollars in. Uh, uh, or it was a $60 billion in <laughs> consumer products, um, the gap, I, anyway. I, 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 but uh, it's just, it, it makes it's up huge. The, 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 the bulk or at least half of what yeah. the 80, was $85 billion. Uh, uh, so these are amazing um, numbers, and uh, they're just getting deeper and deeper. And uh, U.S. is, is still uh, buying lots of goods. Uh, what is that going to do for trade policy? I think that there has been a shift over the last four years, and especially um, the things with Hong Kong and, and and the South China Sea. These are things that uh, have, I think, and then COVID have um, now shifted the American public opinion isn't is uh, that middle ground of trying to uh, you know accept China and move them in and think that there's going to be some kind of a, a play uh, I there's less of that now and uh, so there's not gonna I, I, I you know I don't think there's gonna be much shift that now Brian was saying confrontation or conciliatory that's an interesting balance and I think that I think Biden is, is going to play this, you know, I think he's going to play it, you know, in the middle. So I think he's going to try to, you know, uh, get right at that balance. And um, but, the, you know, the, the trade deficit, what does it do? It hurts U.S. jobs is basically what it does. And uh, um, and uh, and there doesn't seem to be any end to this. So I'm not sure what they can do. OK, fair enough. Brian, um, so a lot of, I suppose, time from your side now is, is focused on China. Japan, which has kind of been a bit it's gone off the radar, I suppose, for a lot of investors really over the last year or so, since things have seemed to be just, you know, relatively stable out there. We've yeah. got what elections, if I remember rightly, and, um, towards the end of October. Um, do you think that might have any implications for the way policy goes for Japan and as part of the region or just domestically or, or whatever it might be? Not really. I, I think, um, yeah, I haven't checked the the you know, the long, you know the, the polls uh, for for Japanese elections uh, going forward and, and sort of approval ratings for the government, but uh, my sense is it's not really on the radar at the moment. And and if I had to uh, you know, make a guess, yeah, you know, this far out, I would say that the Liberal Democratic Party would would be favourites to win that. Um, and in, in any event, I, I don't think uh, that was going to have much of an impact on what the Bank of Japan is doing on monetary policy. They've you know, they've they haven't changed policy since <laughs> what, 2016 or something. Becomes and, uh, a given almost, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So I, I don't, and you know, they're still very much committed to this idea of of, of trying to uh, uh, provide quantitative easing to to get uh, you know prices moving again. So I, I don't think that's going to make a, a huge difference. Um, but again, uh, it, it could be uh, you know the, the China story could be a factor in the upcoming elections and. So that might be something that that's worth paying attention to, because yeah, it's not just obviously the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and China, 
um, every major country in the region has um, you know a very important stake in, in yeah, that relationship sure. and in their own bilateral relationship with China and uh, it'll be interesting to see whether you know they try to sort of form a, a, um, a sort of common approach to, to uh, responding to what China's doing or whether the, you know they uh, sort of go their own way. Okay. Um, just quickly sticking with Japan, um, I thought I saw, um, was it Tokyo today, um, declared a state of emergency um, okay. due to uh, the, the COVID numbers. Now, of course, Japan is supposed to be hosting the Olympics in July, remember, isn't it? Um, and, you know, typically speaking, when a country holds holds the Olympics, it tends to be quite beneficial for that country in terms of GDP, just because of the extra expenditure and anything else. So, I mean, do you think it's there's a real risk that these Olympics might still not be held, even though, as I understand it, the authorities are saying still that it, they will take place? What are, so basically, well, I suppose, what I'm really asking you, what are the COVID numbers looking like? And I suppose not just in Japan, but also the region as a whole. Yeah, I mean, you know, in six months' time, yeah, who, who can say what was going to be happening? Oh, fair, yeah, uh, fair point. Going at the moment. Um, my, you know, if you had to ask me now, I'd say yes, it will go ahead. Uh, you know, there's so much um, invested in in this going ahead, um, and you know, obviously the rise of the vaccines provides some sort of uh, grounds for optimism. But yeah, this, you know, we're not done with this uh, virus. Obviously, in this part of the world, either it's not as bad uh, as it is in your uh, part of the world. But it's still having a, a significant impact on on the economic numbers, and it's still, you know, uh, you know, flaring up here and there and, and causing problems. So, you know, that's going to be something that the Japanese government will be very concerned about. Okay. And any else you want to mention for which I haven't asked you about for your region? Uh, any no, any I mean, key just, stuff? No, just in in general, as I said, you know. We're talking about some of the other situations, but uh, yeah, the other trends and themes to emerge for, for 2021. But you know, we are still in the thick of, of, of the virus having an impact on on the eco- economic numbers and on policy. And I, I think you know, for the foreseeable future, we're still going to have this highly accommodative policy across the region here. Okay, fair enough. Um, okay, then, so across to my part of the world, and I suppose, well, just following on from Brian Hamdan, um, I mean, COVID is quite clearly, unfortunately, still the major issue here. And I suppose really on a warning note, I mean, the worrying aspect is that most governments, I guess this, this isn't just true of Europe either, but particularly true of Europe, are falling behind in their vaccine delivery targets. And uh, there's been a lot of political pressure coming through on governments to try and step up the actual uh, the, the distribution of the vaccines um, in order to try and meet uh, the sort of the targets they have for inoculating people. Anyway, putting that on one side, I guess you know, one of the big issues for Europe in 2021 is going to be what happens to this new post-Brexit trading relationship between the European and the UK. We did finally get this um, trade deal agreed on Christmas Eve, so what, just six days or so before the end of the transition period. That's been taken positively by financial markets, um, although it's got to be said, I think, from the way notably the pound's been trading over the last several months, the expectation in the market, despite the fact it was so close to the wire, was that there would be some sort of deal agreed. And on the whole, it's been taken relatively well, but taken ultimately is no great surprise. But the real issues here, I suppose, of course, is what is going to happen as we go forward. Yes, we have a deal on goods trade, which means that there won't be any quotas um, or tariffs. 
um, implemented on exports or imports but between the two regions. And that's obviously good news for, uh, for the economies on both sides. The bad news is, though, there's nothing at all to do with what's happening to the service side of the economy. And crucially for the likes of the UK, what's going to happen to financial services? Uh, now, talks on no, that particular issue started this week. Um, it sounds like they're hoping to come out with some kind of agreement on this at some point in March. Although, given their previous timetables, who knows what's going to happen there? But if they can't get some kind of agreement, then there is going to have major financial implications for uh, the way markets operate in the UK and across in the Eurozone as well. Now, from what the, uh, the Bank of England was saying earlier on this week, it sounds as if they're expecting what they call a memorandum of understanding on financial services to be produced by spring. But what what the UK certainly wants is some kind of uh, well, some kind of chance of EU granting what they call regulatory equivalence to the UK, which effectively would allow British institutions to continue to operate within the European markets as they have in the past. But it looks like that's still going to be somewhat unlikely. So I think the bottom line to all this is there's still a lot of uncertainty surrounding what the final shape of the Brexit trade deal it was, the overall Brexit trade deal so goods and services is going to look like as we go through 2021 which at least keeps the door open to plenty of potential volatility um, and one of the knock-on effects, I suppose, this, which is worth bearing in mind, it, it may or may not come to fruition this year, but something to on the back burner. Um, part of the UK, which is none too chuffed about recent developments, of course, is Scotland, which voted to uh, remain part of, well, I say voted, wanted to remain part of the European Union, was extremely unhappy with the decision to actually go ahead with Brexit. Scotland holds uh, its regional parliamentary elections on May the 6th. The Scottish National Party is currently so far ahead in polls it could actually, it could actually sweep the entire vote. If that were the case, then inevitably that's going to increase uh, pressure from the Scottish Natch for a second referendum on independence. Westminster's view at the moment, and Westminster has to give the OK to this, is that uh, Scotland can't have another referendum for at least a couple of decades or so. But if they were to win a you know, complete blanket sweep in these elections in early May, then it may make it very difficult for uh, for London Parliament not to give them a nod. If they vote for independence, of course, then that really is going to put right cat amongst the pigeons in terms of what's going to happen to the UK as we go through the rest of the year. So it's certainly something, I think, to keep an eye on as we go through 2021. Um, what else we got? Oh, um, can I ask yeah. a question? How big, yeah, is Scot how big is Scotland in Britain economically? Off the top of my head, I suppose, we're probably talking something about, what, 15 to 20 percent, something like that. So it's not massively big, but the trouble but it's, is... It's, it, so it's kind of like, the, by coincidence, it's roughly the same size as Britain was to Europe? Yeah, getting, getting something like that, I guess. Yeah, it's true. Um, but, you know, the, the problem becomes, if the Scots were to pull away, then does that mean that you know, the Wales would pull away as well? Uh, perhaps even Northern Ireland wants some kind of independence. So it all starts getting very messy. Um, I mean, I must say, politically, it's extremely complicated because Scotland would have to, you know, they want to rejoin the European Union, but they'd be supposedly they'd still be using the British pound. And how on the earth do you rejoin the European Union when you don't actually have your own currency? So it's, I mean, it's extremely complicated, but it's something which certainly investors would become, I think, very concerned upon. It looked like Scotland were going to be granted independence at some point. But economically, Wales isn't too big, right? But, no, Wales is even smaller. But but Northern Ireland has um, 
the manufacturing base, right? It does. I mean, again, Northern Ireland is relatively small compared to uh, the rest, the rest of Britain, anyway. Um, but yeah, you know, and it's a bit like the European Union. Anything which suggests that there's some going to be some kind of fragmentation taking place automatically gets investors nervous, and they start moving elsewhere. Um, and that's why, as we've talked about in the podcast in, in the past, that you know, a Brexit need not necessarily just be a bad thing for the UK, but it's potentially bad for Europe as well, simply because uh, both trading sides are losing a major trading partner and with no deal at all it would be extremely bad because it's, it's going to hit growth as it is i think most forecasts now even with this trade deal on goods expect longer term growth projections or longer term growth profiles for the european union and the uk to be at least significantly lower than it would have been if we continued to operate on the complete you know free trade basis that we've had for so long have we seen in the uk trade data you know the shift in sort of the relative importance of different trading partners uh, sort of over the last 12 months or so? I've got to say, no. I mean, I have to stick my hand up and say that UK trade numbers at the moment are horrendous. Uh, they swing about all over the place. It's been a huge problem for the uh, Office of National Statistics, the, uh, the stats guys over here, trying to compile these numbers. And it's got to the stage now whereby, well, go back sort of 20 years or so, when if the US had a big deficit or bigger deficit on trade and expected, the dollar would go down. And exactly Exactly the same sort of thing for the pound. Investors currently almost ignore the UK trade figures just just because they're so volatile and they get revised by massive amounts. But I think you're looking at the numbers for what they're worth at this time. No, Um, I think you've got to say that the EU is still by far and away the most important trading block as far as the UK is concerned. And despite the fact that they've got a trade agreement with Japan and one with Singapore, uh, the export markets for the UK there are so small that it's still relatively peanuts compared to you know, what they do with the rest of the European Union. So you know, how this all pans out in the fullness of time, there may well have to be some structural shifts, but it's certainly not going to come about in a hurry. Um, okay, other bits I should say from what's going on in Europe. Um, just I suppose I should mention with regard to what Brian was talking about earlier about the political side. EU and China, for anyone who uh, missed it, actually agreed um, a long-awaited investment deal um, just a few days ago. This thing's taken about seven years of talks to, to get anywhere with. Um, it really just suggests kind of bringing about uh, an even pl- a level playing field between uh, investors going into China and China going into the, into the European Union. Now, however, um, although this was seen as a major potential thaw in relationships between the European Union and the Chinese, since we've had the fracas, for want of a better word, in Hong Kong, there's increasing pressure now from the European Parliament, which has yet to sign off on this deal. And that's key in this issue. The European Commission's agreed this deal, but the European Parliament actually hasn't done so far. There's been a lot of pressure coming through. Um, from those parties who attach a lot of weight to you know, the way governments operate, particularly from the humanitarian or authoritarian side, um, about what's going to happen. And it seems possible now that this deal might not actually take place. 
And I suppose one of the key trigger points here is going to be what happens in Germany. I mean, amongst uh, a couple of elections we have this year coming out of Europe, we've got the Dutch general elections on the 17th of March. But more importantly, we have the German elections on the 26th of September. Now, at this stage, it's, it's really too early to say who's going to win. But the key point here is that Chancellor Angela Merkel, who's been sitting there for what, the best part of 15 years now, will be standing down. Expectations are that we'll get the, well, sort of traditional coalition government in Germany, but there will be a big say from the Green Party, which very much adopts a, a hawkish attitude towards China and the humanitarian issues and the like. So, you know, depending on what's happening elsewhere, it could lead to a, an additional sort of you know, polarisation between what's going on in China and what's going on perhaps elsewhere in the West. So in terms of political relationships between Europe and China, that's going to be one of the big issues to watch as far as this year is concerned. Certainly, I mean, Germany is well aware of the fact that it's, it's made extremely strong inroads into China. I think they had about trade volume of the best part of 200 billion euros um, last year. And China is now a major export partner as far as Germany is concerned. But, you know, the politics of trading with China, perhaps if the Biden administration is going the other way, it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of that. Um, right. OK. Policy wise, key things this uh, year. Well, as far as ECB is concerned, you know, the COVID numbers are still so bad that if we do see any move, it's going to be towards additional easing. Interest rates do seem to have bottomed. Nobody really wants to seem to take them further into negative territory, although it's still a possibility. So if we do see anything else, expect more quantitative easing. But we will also see more and more of a push, I suspect, into uh Green bonds. I mean, Lagarde is very keen on stressing her green credentials. Um, from the beginning of this year, uh, green bonds were accepted as collateral with payouts linked to uh, sustainability targets. They're also included in uh, asset purchase schemes. And we're probably going to see more and more of that as, as the part of their corporate bond purchase program as we go through 2021. So, you know, green related companies potentially stand to outperform as we go through this year. We'll also get um, the long awaited sort of structural policy review from the European Central Bank. That was originally was timetable for the end of this year, but courtesy of coronavirus, it's been delayed. I think the current timetable is the middle of this year. And what's going to happen there? We've already seen the changes coming out from the Fed moving towards um, average inflation targeting. And there's a fair amount of speculation that we could see something happening to the ECB as well. Um, um, if you remember, we have this somewhat strange target of close to but below 2% is the target for um, inflation for the ECB. That's expected to be moved to a, a clear 2% target, but a symmetric target. So again, that effectively means average inflation targeting. So periods of significant undershooting of that target should be followed by significant overshooting, which of course means that interest mm -hmm. rates can remain that much lower for that much we, longer. We, you know, Jeremy, but... Uh, yep. It's all going to turn on COVID. We haven't really talked about COVID here, um, but you're in a lockdown in the UK, and that's that can't be good for the first quarter. And uh, the US isn't really in, uh, isn't seeing that level of restrictions. Uh, so, um, what is your outlook for the UK first quarter? What is the, uh, how big and severe are the outlooks in Europe underway? Are they more severe than they were in November and December? Yeah, and I mean. It's 
It's a good question. I was hoping really at this stage we wouldn't have to be talking about COVID still, but I'm quite clearly, I mean, it is still when you want to, the key factors for the first quarter. I think it's fair to say as far as first quarter, well, not just UK, but Europe as a whole is concerned, the economic numbers are going to be bad. Um, for the UK, as you mentioned, we've gone into a hard lockdown. Where are we? As of last week, that's expected to go through until at least the middle of February, possibly through to March. In other words, we're effectively talking about the whole first quarter. Germany recently came out and extended its lockdown through until at least the end of January. And it, again, that may well be extended into uh, February. France is currently considering a third lockdown because the numbers are still too high. So if you know you put it all together, I think you know, economies have, have adjusted and businesses have adjusted in such a way as a result of the first COVID wave that this this, this hit from the lockdowns shouldn't be as bad. Nonetheless, well, what, about, what about the lower income households? How are they going to pay their rent? How are they going to get food? That kind of thing. Well, um, the government is still providing um, subsidies and support pretty well right across Europe at the moment. So, I mean, it's not just the state side where we're seeing these socking rate budget deficits, but it's happening right across Europe too. Um, but, and obviously we got, you know, the standard issues like unemployment pay and things like that. But the bottom line is it's going to lead to, I suspect, a very poor period for European growth. We know that, well, I say we know, it seems pretty sure that uh, fourth quarter growth in the UK and in uh, continental Europe will be negative. It wouldn't surprise you now if we get another negative coming for the first quarter as well. If it's positive, then it's going to be very weak. So well, just, now, let's talk about Asia. Uh, uh, Brian, now, Japan, are they going to be in contraction in the first quarter? Is China the, the, you know, the, the global exception here? I mean, are they just going to, is their recovery just going to uh, continue? Uh, yeah, I think if you look at the the PMI numbers that we've had uh, this week, uh, you know obviously that relates to the the end of of the year in December. Uh, they they're showing um, still pretty solid growth in in both the manufacturing services sector in China, and so going forward, you know I'd expect you know that to continue, um, still sort of having a, a little bit of expansion as you know they're not having the same uh, issues right now with uh, the virus, but yeah elsewhere across the region. Uh, it's still going to be having a, a pretty big impact on the numbers. We we did see, in particular, you know, the PMI for Hong Kong um, moved sharply back into contraction. It had been sort of coring its way out for several months and just got to that sort of 50 level, and then it's just dropped straight back down to to around the 43 level. And so, uh, you know, and obviously that, to a certain extent, is, is caused by the fact that, you know, so much of the, of the region is exposed to external demand, and so... What's happening in, in in Europe in particular has really uh, undercut some of that uh, export-led growth that we were hoping to get. Okay, let me ask a more general question now. Um, inflation. And there are quite clearly two very different views on this at the moment, I think, from well, the market perspective amongst forecasters and, and everybody else, really. One is that we're already, you know, the global economy is really showing signs of, you know, suffering some bottlenecks. So if you look at things like, you know, the price of copper, it's up, well, I don't know, 25 percent or so since the, uh, the start of last year. Uh, we had this big increase in imports, which is causing havoc at a number of the world's ports, particularly in the, in the likes of the UK. I mean, the oil markets made some kind of comeback. Um, but then there's a view that, well, as a result of this pandemic, 
and changes in work practices and everything else, it may actually lead to an increased period of productivity growth, which will actually help to dampen low inflationary pressures already. So in terms of your various regions, I mean, what do you think is going to happen to inflation over the next year or so? Have we now bottomed and we're going to start moving up or are we still in this period of, well, low or even negative inflation rates? Mark, your side first. Well, now I'm going to come right back. You had the uh, European um, Harmonized uh, Inflation Report, Consumer Report. Right? I, I looked at the graph. It's been four months in a row, but uh, minus, what, minus, yep. you know, 0.3 or something. And then narrow gauge, uh, four months in a row at 0.2. Yep. I mean, and this, that's the year-on-year rate, I think, right? That's so. So there's that's not any life, but we are seeing in the different reports, um, the survey reports, which you know ask about you know input costs and things. We're seeing a lot of uh, big numbers for these indexes, uh, and I think that's also tied to supplier deliveries and those kinds of things. And but at the same time, a lot of these reports are saying the firms aren't passing those on to uh, the pass through isn't really happening. And uh, well, we want to you know they say well they're trying to keep their customers you know uh, market share and that kind of thing. But um, can they pass these price increases uh, along? And I guess that's ultimately what the question is. And um, certainly Jerome Powell doesn't think that they're going to be able to. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, when will we see any kind of substantial increase in inflation, um, acceleration in inflation? Uh, it, we, you know, if, and we're not seeing it. We're seeing it in house prices. You know, we're seeing it in the financial markets, but we're not seeing it in goods uh, and services. Mm. Um, so, uh, and if these markets, I mean, can it fly forever? I mean, the housing bubble 12 years ago, um, in the, in the U S it was a disaster. The house, uh, house prices, uh, went down by 20% and that created a, a huge economic dislocations and financial dislocations. So if we get that again, that'll be even more deflationary. So, um, I wouldn't say policymakers here are not concerned about inflation over the next year. Fair enough. Right. Your side, Brian. Yeah, I don't think it's a really big issue for policymakers here as well, at least, you know, looking over the next six to nine months. Um, you know, once once we get towards the end of the year, maybe, you know, some of the year-on-year comparisons might start to, to shift things. But uh, it, it's pretty – if you look at underlying measures of inflation right across the region, they're pretty stable and low. You've got a bit of volatility in the headline numbers in both China and India, but that's mainly uh, reflecting swings in food prices – uh, given that you know food is such a big part of the CPI baskets for those for those two countries relative to so sort of other countries, so yeah, it's not not really on the radar uh, at, at the moment. Okay, fair enough. I must say, to be honest, I think you know, I tend to agree with the same sort of thing in Europe as Mark's already mentioned. I mean, the the numbers, particularly out of continental Europe, remain extremely low indeed. And the core measures have been um, flatter um, record lows now for the last four weeks, um, last four weeks, last four months or so. Um, I suppose it's worth remembering Europe, some of the European numbers are being biased down at the moment by some of the changes to VAT, particularly out of Germany. And um, the German rate cut was was reversed at the beginning of this year, so we will see. Some 
some slightly higher um, headline inflation figures over the course of the next few months. But they still look like they're going to remain extremely low compared to the various targets which are doing the rounds. So it's going to be interesting because we've seen some of these yield curves steepen. And partly, I think, you're due to looking at the financial base measures of inflation expectations, notably stateside, where you know, they move up above a sort of a 2% type area. I mean, they're going to be right then, presume these yield curves should start to, well, should continue to steepen because uh, we all seem to think that your short-term interest rates uh, are going to stay down. But inflation really does stay low, then who knows? Perhaps uh, expectations of the market for these steeper curves are going to prove a little bit premature. Um, right, one perhaps last thing, unless anybody else has got anything they particularly want to talk about before we end this because we've been prattling on for quite a while now. Um, I just want to talk about the, the FX markets. Um, it's kind of a strange world at the moment because I guess we're in this kind of period whereby markets are convinced that because we've got this vaccine, everything is going to come all right at the end of the day. And in that kind of market, we're talking about a risk on uh, scenario. So we're talking about typically speaking a weak dollar as it operates in its usual counter cyclical pattern, which is good news for all, <laughs> say, all that that. that the, the high interest rate currencies to the extent we have them anymore, but certainly the likes of the emergers and the developing countries as well. But we have had clearly some complaints coming out from the US side uh, about ways some countries may or may not be manipulating mm. their currencies. And they've had a go at what the Swiss National the Bank. The Swiss got in there, yeah. And, uh, Vietnam, right. and Vietnam got in there as well. So, I mean, mm. does it, I mean, I suppose it's going back to but sort of the Biden, new Biden administration. Is hmm. the dollar, do you think, going to be more important under a, under a Biden administration, or is it still something that they talk about that it just does its own thing? I think it's I think it's the latter. Uh, I don't think that they'll be focused uh, too much. I think that what we saw with the dollar policy or the uh, currency uh, accusations of currency manipulation, um, they can pick that you know uh, when they want to, uh, and they're you know it's arbitrary uh, the levels of, of currency moves relative to. Um, uh, trade levels that uh, these uh, determinations are made by. So it's a very political um, uh, decision. And uh, I don't think it's going to be, I don't think they want the dollar to be a significant issue. Um, you know, it's considered, you know, the global reserve currency and there's going to be demand for it. Uh, what do you think about, but it also what about Bitcoin? What, you know, uh, several years back, I remember when uh, Yellen was uh, giving a press conference, Bitcoin was going through the roof and uh, all the questions were about Bitcoin. What's the Fed going to do about Bitcoin? And and she kind of like, you know, you know, nodded her head or shrugged her shoulders or whatever. And it's like nothing. And it really did turn out to nothing. But is, is it coming back now? Well, I mean, we've had this massive appreciation of Bitcoin since what the end of I mean, it got it got what it got trashed during the, the first wave of the virus back in what March, April time. Since when, if you were bold enough, bold enough to buy into it, you'd have made a small fortune because we're talking about you know, new record highs as, as we go along. I suppose, I mean, I've got no idea where Bitcoin is going to go from here, but I suppose, I mean, it's worth pointing out that central banks generally now are taking the whole issue of cryptocurrencies much more seriously. We've got what, uh, Canada, the Eurozone, Japan, Sweden, Switzerland, UK, they're all been looking into it with a view to potentially introducing some kind of central bank cryptocurrency. Now, and that's not going to happen, I don't suppose, this year. 
I think certainly within Europe, anyway, Sweden, which has been uh, leading you know, sort of the, the Western economies in this front, they're due to come out with some announcement about a possible cryptocurrency from the central bank itself around about towards the back end of 2022. But I mean, that's a good thing or a bad thing, I think, for Bitcoin, because one, it shows that central banks are taking it seriously. But the other thing is, if the central banks get really involved in this, then it really does suggest there's going to be a much greater degree of regulation and all this sort of thing. And whether or not we can see the unregulated things like you know, the Ethereum or Bitcoin moving about like we have over the last several years or so, well, I don't know. That, that remains to be seen. Well, what about your side, Brian? Is there much crypto stuff out there? Yeah, not really, uh, unless uh, it's, it's, it's something I might have missed. I'm, I'm sure there has been some uh, discussion about it, but it hasn't really been a, a big theme uh, uh, in, in this part of the world um, from a you know from a central bank perspective. Uh, but but again, yeah, currencies obviously you know uh, that's that's that is something that uh, you know the the, the Asian uh, economies are very exposed to. So that is something that they're paying attention to, particularly if you look at the, you know, the Australian dollar, that has really uh, gone up pretty sharply yeah. over the last yeah. sort of three to six months. I think it's sort of at around two-year highs now, and that just sort of complicates the uh, the, the policy uh, mix for the Reserve Bank of Australia uh, you know, quite significantly. I suppose um, the interesting scenario here would be that I think by and large markets seem to be relatively negative on the dollar at the moment, you know, because people are looking at this kind of return to a more normal state of affairs and you can start you know, taking risk on. If we were to see, let's say, a lousy performance out of Europe this year, which is certainly possible, let's suppose we have some breakdown in communications, whether it might be between the US and the Asia region as a whole, and we start to see markets begin to panic again and we see a big move back into the dollar, then I suspect you could well see some of these emerging currencies, particularly if the Fed were to start tightening. Some of these emerging currencies and the likes of the cryptocurrencies you know, really could get absolutely hammered. So, I mean, there's the thing about the cryptocurrencies, I mean, you can make an awful lot of money out of it, but you can also lose your shirt on it as well. Well, you would think that the, the, the acceleration we're seeing in, in, in the cryptocurrencies, they must be tied to all the liquidity, the monetary policy. Is it just another financial asset that's shooting through the roof? I think I think you're right. I mean, one of the first questions you know, going back right, right at the start of this thing is about equity markets. I mean, the bottom line is there's just so much liquidity sloshing around out there. It simply has to find a home. And when you've got no interest rates of any significance anywhere, you know, what you're going to do, you can take a punt on the equity markets, which people haven't made money. You can also look for alternative assets, which move a lot and give you, you know, the volatility to make money, such as cryptocurrencies. But as we are saying earlier, what goes up can also come down just as quickly okay we have been talking for rather a long time on this uh podcast but hopefully folks found it interesting so before we round off has anyone got any great words of wisdom to finish with i was hoping that would be quiet <laughs> okay then suitably enough i think that probably is it for our look ahead as far as today's concerned after a year like 2020 and wednesday's riots in u.s congress well let's be honest who knows what will really happen but whatever does accommodate will be here throughout to keep you up to date with all the key market moving data and events courtesy of our global economic calendar on behalf of mark brian and myself thanks as always for tuning in We'll be back next week with, and we look forward to seeing you then. Bye for now.